Thanks for joining us for another episode of MFA Writers. It's hard to believe it's already November. For those of you currently in MFA programs, I hope the semester is going well, even as the temperatures turn cold. Fall break is just around the corner. And for those applying to MFA programs this cycle, I hope you enjoyed our applications episode last week and are feeling a bit better about the approaching deadlines that are now just over a month away. Today we're back to our regularly scheduled programming, and I'm excited to be covering UNLV's MFA program, which was requested by CC Molason. I hope you like it. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Krista Diamond. Krista is a Las Vegas-based writer whose work has appeared or is forthcoming in the New York Times. Long Reads, Hazlitt, Catapult, Electric Literature, Joyland, and elsewhere. Her writing has been supported by Tin House and Bread Loaf. Her essay, That Girl is Going to Get Herself Killed, which first appeared in Long Reads, was adapted for audio by Oscar-nominated actress Naomi Harris. She is currently a third-year fiction student in the MFA program at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where she is working on a novel about paparazzi. Today, Krista is going to read an excerpt from her piece, How to Do a Digital Detox in Five Easy Steps, which was published in Porterhouse Review. Hi, thank you for having me. So this excerpt uh, is about a woman who, having lived her entire life on the internet, decides to attempt a digital detox in Death Valley. Um, And a piece of important context is that the you in the story, the The you that she is speaking to is her phone. Every sound was amplified. A tiny rock falling from a canyon wall, my own footsteps. The terrain pushed against my boots, resisting me. Walking in loose sand and rocks was like wading upstream, I thought. But it must have been a feeling from a very long time ago, because I couldn't remember the last time I'd been in a river. I passed a cactus the size of a basketball and felt the urge to take a photo of it, to post it to Instagram. I spent the next 10 minutes fantasizing about the caption I'd write. I wanted to ask you if you knew any cactus puns. The open desert tilted upwards. Over my shoulder, the valley was a deep and meaningless bowl. I wanted to take a picture, crop the image, put a filter on it, make it pretty. But I stopped myself which was progress. The digital detox articles I'd read 
had talked about the muscle memory I might experience. A thumb twitch indicating the instinctual urge to swipe, to type, to post. The phantom vibrations of you against my hip. I kept moving, listening to my breath, pulling the desert air into my lungs and releasing it. You were right. The featureless earth did eventually lead to the mouth of a canyon. The walls appeared suddenly on either side of me. Although it was no more aesthetically pleasing than the bleached upward slope that had brought me to it, at least now the way was obvious. And it was shadier, cooler. I stopped to eat a handful of almonds. There wasn't anywhere comfortable to sit, so I stood with my back against the canyon wall. It was warm. The silence remained shocking. The sheer enormity of quiet never went away, but I began to adjust to it, adapting to a world without alarms and alerts and ringtones. As I walked further, the canyon narrowed until it was so narrow that I could outstretch my arms and touch both sides of it. I did, feeling the sharp rocks on either side of me, looking up at the unsaturated sky. I wanted to ask you so many things. How many canyons were there, just like this one, in these mountains? What were these mountains called? How long had they existed? And how many people were, like me, hiking alone within them? At my feet, there was a small pile of animal droppings. I didn't know who had made them, but they looked fresh. I wanted to ask you to identify pellet-sized animal droppings, or maybe, is there any animal in Death Valley that can kill me? I had this urge once again when I passed beneath a gigantic boulder overhead lodged between the walls of the canyon. It must have tumbled down from the mountains above, but I had no way of knowing when that had happened or if the rock would fall again, if it was safe to pass beneath it. But what could you have shown me to assuage my fears? Statistics to match the search term, Death Valley accidents, how many annual? When the urge to use technology surfaces, one of the blog posts had said, try to reframe your thoughts. I tried. I tried to go back to a time in my life that hadn't been defined by trying to turn a moment into a piece of content, a time in which I'd had a question that couldn't be answered by typing words into a search bar, a time in which I genuinely wondered something and basked in the pleasure of just wondering. I thought of first times, first dates before dating apps, a chain restaurant, a dark movie theater, his parents' living room couch, his fingers inside me, his noises, his words, the choreography of being with him. First dates before crowdsourced restaurant review apps, my dad's special grilled cheese with Monterey Jack and white cheddar, sunburst orange sashimi when our town got its first sushi restaurant, Silver tequila on a frat house's dark lawn. First places before travel influencers. The ocean with my mother. The boardwalk with the bright arcade. Disney World with my grandmother. Lizards falling from the tree outside her double wide. I did exist outside of the internet, in the physical world. Sometimes I scrolled through my own Instagram to remind myself of this. Krista, that was awesome. I love that piece so much. And I hope readers go to Porterhouse Review and read the rest of it because it is really, really good. And I'm glad you chose to read an excerpt from that for us. And thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
So you have a background working in the national parks, which shows up a lot in your work, both your fiction and nonfiction. So how did you end up working in national parks and how influential do you think that experience was to making you the person you are today? So I started working in the national parks when I was 22 after I had moved to Boulder, Colorado after undergraduate, followed a a boyfriend there, which is a thing (laughs) I think a lot of us do. And the relationship didn't work out. I kind of had nowhere to go. So I, and I really didn't have any money. So I I was just kind of Googling and looking for places that I could live and work without having any money. And um, I had ha- I had known of friends who had done seasonal work at ski resorts and things like that. Um, so I started looking around this website called Coolworks, which is a great website if you're ever looking to do this kind of work. Long story short, found that uh, a hotel in Death Valley National Park was hiring. And I was kind of like, I don't think anybody would want to work or live there. So they'll probably hire me. And they <laughs> did. And um I just fell in love with it um, and ended up staying in the national parks for, for years, kind of just bouncing around the national parks and they provide you with housing while you're there. Um, That's just taken out of your paycheck. So they provide you with a cafeteria and housing and you work and you, and you live there and it's, it's seasonal. So you're there for a few months and then you can go somewhere else. And um, I ended up doing that for much longer than I expected. And I kind of felt like I was sort of kind of wasting my life writing wise because I had been so focused for my entire life on wanting to be a writer. And then all of a sudden I'm just bouncing around the national parks, not really writing. Um, But in retrospect, like that, that kind of was an act of writing because as you said, so much of my writing is about the national parks and is very like rooted in place. So that it definitely didn't feel influential on me as a writer at the time. I felt really guilty about not writing um, and just kind of hiking and partying in the desert and doing all the things that I was doing. But, but in retrospect, uh, it was, it really was an act of writing in, in its own way. Well, that piece that you read from is a fiction piece, but we also mentioned in your bio that piece called That Girl is Going to Get Herself Killed, which is published in Long Reads. That's a nonfiction piece that's mostly about near-death experiences that you and others have had in the national parks around the U.S. It's a great piece. I highly recommend listeners go and read it. But it did give me like some retroactive anxiety, not just for you, but also for myself, because when I was like in my 20s, I also spent like almost a decade traveling abroad and did a fair amount of reckless stuff while I was traveling and backpacking. And it's interesting looking back on it now because in some ways I kind of cringe and feel anxious about some of the things I did. But at the same time, those experiences kind of made me who I am today and made me the writer that I am today. So it's it's kind of like a complicated feeling when I look back on some of those experiences. And I'm curious if you have similar kind of complicated feelings about those experiences and how much those complicated emotions fuel your writing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really grateful for those experiences. And it's so funny how at the time you never really know what, what is going to be something that is so influential and, and so important to you as a writer, I definitely, in the beginning of that essay that you referenced, it begins with describing uh, the time that I almost drowned in Glacier National Park. And I certainly didn't get out of that river and immediately think this is going to be a great 
story someday. Right. <laughs> um, I think now I probably would have that instinct because I'm very like just writer brained now. Um, but it's kind of these things that you file away and, and they come back to you. And, and that one, I had done this virtual workshop with Megan Steelstra through Black Mountain Institute, which is a literary arts organization at UNLV. Um, and this was before I was in the MFA at UNLV. I was just part of the community. And I got to do this nonfiction workshop uh, with, with Megan Steelstra, who was a fellow there at the time. And we did this amazing exercise where we wrote down kind of a timeline of all these significant events in our life, just really rapid fire. And for some reason, um, you know, that almost drowning ended up on that timeline. And when we shared from that exercise, I just casually mentioned in 2012, I was working in at a hotel in Glacier National Park and a man I had just met invited me to go tubing in a river and little did I know I would almost drown that day. And that ended up being almost verbatim the first line of that essay. And right. it, it was amazing how this experience from such a long time ago was this kind of seed for this this much larger essay, which I feel so grateful that that essay was, was quite well received and has really had a lot of longevity because, yeah, it's, it really is kind of in large part an essay about me being a complete idiot. And uh, <laughs> thank God I didn't die during all the dumb things I did in the national parks. Cause then I wouldn't be alive to write. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, okay. So that piece is a nonfiction piece. The piece you read from is a fiction piece. I'm curious to hear you talk about your process and how you decide whether an experience you've had is better faced head on in nonfiction or explored in fiction. That's a really good question. Um, I think they're, they feel like such different things to me because prior to, the MFA, I was freelancing full time. So I was always, I was often thinking about my writing in terms of who I could pitch things to, who I could sell things to. And I didn't really have the luxury to think about fiction as much as I wanted to, because it's a lot harder to get paid to write fiction. So that, that digital detox piece that Porterhouse Review published really came about as a result of me being in an MFA and having the time to pursue that in a different genre. And that's unfortunately like kind of a capitalistic answer to your question, but it often does come down to, can I sell this and get paid for it? Um, which is just, at least in my experience, a lot easier with nonfiction versus, versus fiction. But it's also fun to have the option to explore things both ways. Um, I hadn't really written too much about the national parks and wilderness from a fiction perspective. I had been doing so much of that work like as a nonfiction writer. So it's it's really different to to have that space to kind of to play in and you know, not mm -hmm. to have to rely on stories from your own life. You mentioned that you did freelance full time before you went to grad school. You told me before the interview that you learned everything by trial and error when doing that job. So I'm curious to hear you talk about that, like what you learned from that experience that might be helpful to listeners. Absolutely. And I think a lot of freelancers learn by trial and error. And it's it's it can be a painful way to learn for sure. I had been I had been working as kind of basically like a copywriter for like a tech company which was pretty soulless and I was pretty unhappy. And 
I saw, I think on Facebook back when we used to use Facebook, some sort of ad for some outdoor brand that was looking for people to write things about the national parks for their blog. And I was just looking for other ways to utilize my writing. And I wrote something for them. I forget what it was about, but I contacted them and wrote something for them. Um, They ended up not paying me, which at the time as a baby freelancer, I was fine with. I was like, I bought the lie that exposure is, is a form of payment and that's fine. So they didn't pay me for this piece that I wrote. And then they ended up selling it to this major outdoor retailer um, for probably a lot of money. And I didn't get any of that. And uh, that was a hard lesson to learn. So um, yeah, I mean, that that's a big lesson that I learned is like, don't, don't listen to people when they tell you to do things for exposure, even if it's your first time ever freelancing, like writing is and can be labor and you deserve to be paid for it. So um, that's a lesson that I certainly learned the hard way. And then, you know, as you continue on with the career, you have to deal with, you know, ne- negotiating rates and things like this and, and things that I think, especially for creative writers are, are uncomfortable um, because we're not necessarily used to looking at our writing as labor or as from a business perspective. So that can feel super uncomfortable, but, but people will really try to take advantage of the fact that you do writing because you love it and because it's art for you. And you should be like, so grateful to have the opportunity to, to do that. Um, so kind of navigating that space, like having to kind of think like a, like a business owner. Cause when you're a freelancer, you are, you are your own small business owner, um, which is super uncomfortable for a lot of people. And you really have to get good at advocating for yourself, marketing yourself, um, finding your opportunities and negotiating contracts. And it's, it's, it's tough to, to do that kind of thing on your own. You know, that business side of writing is something that I don't think MFAs do a great job of covering, not not all MFAs anyway. I'm curious to hear what your experience has been and if you think that is something that MFAs should focus more on. Yeah, that's definitely a conversation within my MFA and like you said, probably at, at many MFAs. And I think there's two schools of thought. Some people, both students and faculty, think that an MFA is supposed to be this kind of incubation period where you're not thinking about publishing, you're not thinking about getting paid money or getting a literary agent or any of those kind of career things. You're just supposed to be alone, like with your art for two to three years. And that's one school of thought. And then there's other people who perhaps are coming from a background where they don't have connections. They weren't raised by like a family that taught them about academia and they are going to that MFA because they want to learn those practical things. You know, how do you write a book proposal? How do you get a literary agent? How do you pitch as a freelancer? And I think both, both of those viewpoints are correct. Um, So I I think my kind of long-winded answer to your question is that I, I would hope that an MFA would give you whichever one of those you desire. If you, if you want like that kind of incubation period, um, like for me, I really wanted three years to just focus on fiction. I had been 
fighting to focus on fiction as a freelancer. And I really kind of wanted that sort of incubation period. But other people like really want connections, resources, all of those things. And I, I think that an MFA should give you what you want um, and shouldn't tell you that what you want is correct or, or incorrect. Um, and I think that at UNLV in particular, we definitely, we have professors who will talk to us about their journey towards publication. We'll talk to you about where you might place your work if that's something you want to do. We definitely have a lot of students who are very generous with those connections. I think that's something that is special about my my MFA is within my cohort. There are always people sharing opportunities. They're like, hey, this contest just opened for submissions. This literary magazine is hi- is hiring paid readers, those kind of things. And it's nice when people are sharing those things because it can be like a take it or leave it. You know, if you want to pursue those opportunities, you know about them. And if you want to just focus on your writing and and don't think about publishing, then you don't have to. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's something that listeners should think about before applying or at least before accepting an offer from a program. Which of those things are you looking for? And then asking the program um, which way they lean and, and what they provide in that regard. Yeah, it's a great question. And and I, I've i seen so many lists of these are the questions you should ask when you are offered a place in an MFA. And I don't think I've really seen that question. So I think that's a really smart idea to just say, I'm looking for like professionalization tools in my MFA. Do you offer that? Like what right. specifically do you do to offer that? Well, before you went to UNLV for the MFA program and before you started working in the national parks, you got a bachelor's degree in English from the University of New Hampshire. And during your time as an undergrad, you were convinced you needed to get an MFA right out of college, but you didn't apply until years later. So what made you wait? And do you think it was the right decision? I'm so, I'm so glad that I waited. And um, I don't know what I was thinking back then. Um, I think it was just because I, at at UNH, English majors were kind of divided into English literature, English teaching, English journalism. Um, and you were kind of encouraged to pick one of those. But all I really wanted to do was write a novel and just be a creative writer. So I, I didn't really fit into any of those buckets. Um, and it sort of felt like there weren't any career options for me. So I was like, well, I love workshopping. I love writing. Um, maybe I should just get an MFA. And uh, there, there probably were professors that were encouraging those of us that felt that way to go that route. But I, I just didn't know like what else I was supposed to do with my life. And um, I had been in so many wonderful workshops at UNH that I just wanted to keep workshopping and being in a writing community. But, but I also kind of didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do with like what I wanted my writing to be like, like what kind of novel I might write. So I I had like this kind of seed of, I love workshopping. I, I love writing. I've been writing my whole life, but I don't know like who I am as a writer, what I would want a book length work of fiction to even look like. So that always kind of stopped me from applying. And, um, I don't know. I think, I think as writers, whenever we introduce like guilt into the writing practice, whether it's like guilt over not writing or guilt over not publishing, or in this case, guilt over not applying to MFAs, it's, it's just not 
it's not great. So I, I thought that I should apply. I also knew nothing about MFAs. Like I didn't know anyone who had done one. Um, nobody in my family had ever been to grad school. Most people in my family didn't go to undergrad. So I, I didn't really know what that even looked like or what I should be looking for in an MFA. So I kind of just like, you know, moved to Colorado and then ended up working in the national parks, but there were a couple separate, a couple separate occasions during like that period of time after undergrad, where I started to put together a list of schools but I, the process just seemed kind of mysterious at the time. And I just, I never really saw a reason to, to really, really go for it until a few years ago when I knew exactly what I wanted to do and why I wanted to get an MFA. Yeah, I think it's good advice to tell listeners to be wary of any expectations of how you get to an MFA or how you're supposed to write. Like, you know, you mentioned that idea of feeling guilty that you weren't writing and having that expectation as an undergrad that you needed to get the MFA right afterwards. I mean, if, if I've learned anything from this podcast, it's that there is no one way to write and there's no one way to get to the MFA. So I don't know, what advice do you have for listeners who might be struggling with some of these myths or notions about how they should write? I think that you'll hear a lot of advice from a lot of different people, whether you're in an MFA or you're not in an MFA and just take what, take what makes sense to you and leave what doesn't. Um, You know, at UNLV, we are fortunate to have Black Mountain Institute, um, that organization that I mentioned earlier, which is a literary arts organization that operates within UNLV. So they bring in, all these different fellows, all these different writers. So in addition to the faculty that we have, we are constantly surrounded by visiting writers who are giving craft talks, um, giving talks on like the business of writing and all these great things. And you have the opportunity to meet with them one-on-one if you want to. And that's really, really wonderful. And if you take advantage of that, or even if you just talk to your professors or you talk to the people in your cohort, you'll hear so many different things like, you know, oh, you should be writing every day. If you're not writing every day, like you're not a writer or you should be publishing or you shouldn't be publishing. Like there's so much conflicting advice that I think you just have to decide like what makes sense for you. Like, I don't know, an example of that is somebody told me like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't spend like so much time like on Twitter or on Instagram, if you're a writer, you should just like delete those social media apps. Um, but as you hopefully heard in the piece that I read an excerpt from, like, I don't think that writing that story would have been possible if like, I didn't have this experience of being extremely online. So yeah, I mean, do, do what works for you. Yeah. I mean, I think listeners can and should discard lots of the advice they get even in the MFA program from the professors from writers that have made it because to me all craft discussions are just discussions about what worked for one person right and some of those things might work for you give them a shot but not all of them will they because there is no one path for anyone right so you have to kind of get used to taking in a bunch of advice and information and then kind of parsing through it and figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah. And you know, when you hear good advice, just like, you know, when you hear bad advice, like last year, I had a a one-on-one meeting with 
uh, Jakira Diaz, who is visiting our campus. And she told me that I should pick like one day out of each week where that was like my writing day. And I turned my phone off and told everyone to leave me alone. And the second I heard that, I was like, yes, like that, that works for me. That might not work for everyone, but that was like a light bulb, like perfect. And I've adapted that into my life and it's, it's great writing advice for me. All right. So you mentioned that you wanted to go to an MFA to focus on fiction and write a novel. Well, your thesis is a novel that explores the way humans interact with wilderness and each other in nature and has to do with wildlife photography and the paparazzi, I believe. Tell us about that project. Yeah, uh, it's not what I expected to be doing, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I I really thought that I would be writing a Vegas novel. I've lived in Vegas for eight years now. So I've been here since before the MFA. And I really went into the program thinking that I was going to write the great Las Vegas novel, uh, whatever that (laughs) is. And I'd still like to, but I wrote this short story my first year about paparazzo and it turned into a novella and now it's a novel and I just sent the first draft of it to uh, my thesis committee so I'm really doing that I guess and (laughs) I think that's what's so wonderful about an MFA is the space to explore and to try things and to pursue things things that you might not have thought you were going to explore and that's really what this has become is this project I didn't expect to pursue that is actually really, really the perfect expression of kind of my experiences and interests. Like it's so much of it comes from working in the national parks. Um, So much of it comes from my experience writing nonfiction because I spend a lot of time in LA um, with paparazzi kind of doing research and more like journalistic work um, and things that I using skills that I learned like as a freelancer to, to research this novel. Um, and I, I feel really fortunate that this is what I'm doing. And um, last year in my fiction workshop, I had returned from a summer in LA working on this and had this novella and uh, Miley Chapman, who is my the chair of my thesis committee, who's one of our fiction professors, encouraged me to workshop this novella in the workshop, um, which I'm so grateful that I was able to do that because so many MFAs, like you really are, workshopping short stories. Um, so I workshopped this novella, which I think was like 150 pages long or something. Um, and she also encouraged me to keep pursuing it. Cause I just, it, it was one of those things where it was not the project I thought I would be working on in the MFA, but I just really fell in love with it and couldn't stop working on it. And I kept telling myself I should be starting this Vegas novel that I came here to write, but I just couldn't couldn't get away from this. And I'm lucky that I've had writers and mentors that have told me, do what you are obsessed with. That's like the best writing advice that um, this writer, uh, Natalie Lima, who I believe teaches at Butler, hopefully I'm getting that right. Um, she told me that during a workshop that I did through some other organization that, you know, write what you're obsessed with. And, and that's, that's what I'm doing with this project. Well, let's talk about the MFA program a bit more. The MFA at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas is a three-year program, and they also offer a PhD program. It's fully funded with tracks in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. What made you decide on UNLV? I imagine living in Vegas had something to do with it. It definitely did. Um, 
That being said, I applied to 14 programs because I waited a while to apply and I waited until the time was right. I kind of didn't want to go through multiple cycles, which I know a lot of people go through multiple cycles. So I applied to as many programs as I could afford to apply to because as you know, like those applications are not cheap. Uh, Nope. (laughs) I feel like that was well over $1,000 applying to those. So I applied to 14 programs. UNLV was pretty high on that list. And largely it was because I was already in Las Vegas at the time. I really, really thought I was going to write this Vegas novel. So I, I might as well do it here. And also I had been a part of just the literary community in Vegas. And I saw the MFA as an opportunity to be deeper involved in that and to be involved in the literary community in Vegas in a different capacity despite the fact that I had been in Vegas for a few years at that point, I had actually never really been to the UNLV campus. I hadn't really spent much time at the university or around the program. So it was a new way for me to engage with this city that I I love so much and this literary community that I love so much. And it was, yeah, it was a real, it was, it was a relief to get in. I got into a few programs and, uh, You know, for a minute there, I thought that I was going to go to Texas State, um, which is a great program. I thought that maybe I was going to go to Northern Arizona, which is a great and I think very underrated program. And then I got into UNLV and um, I was so happy to be able to stay in the city that I love so much. And also just from a practical standpoint, um, you know, I live here. My husband is here. My dog is here. I wasn't super psyched about leaving them behind for a few years. So in general, how important do you think location should be to applicants when they're thinking about where they want to go for an MFA program? I think it is the most important thing. Maybe funding is more important, but that's, that's a complicated one that is dependent on your financial situation. Um, But I would say it's tied with funding. Let's say that Um, if not, the most important thing. And to me, it's all about where, where are you going to be comfortable and hopefully where are you going to be happy living for two to three years? That's, that's so important um, to move to a place where you know that you can feel happy and comfortable. Cause if you are happy and comfortable as a human, then it'll probably be easier to write. Um, Unless you're the kind of person that loves to loves to be miserable and that's important to your writing practice, then maybe 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 go somewhere you hate. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think you know, go somewhere where where you could see yourself living for a few years. I didn't. There were pro- programs that were excellent programs that were located in places where I personally couldn't really see myself living for two or three years. So I really only applied to schools that were in places that I that I liked, like, you know, I mentioned Northern Arizona, that's in Flagstaff. It's like right by the Grand Canyon. So I was like, it would be cool to be by the Grand Canyon, just as somebody that's really into hiking. And, um, you know, I, so, and Vegas is a polarizing place for sure. Um, it's not for everybody. Um, some people really love it. Some people really hate it, but I would hope that people who are considering UNLV would really consider what their relationship is going to be like with Vegas because it's, it is so important. 
Well, you've lived there for eight years and you mentioned being a part of the literary scene there. So I'm curious to hear you give your pitch for Vegas as a literary city. Yeah, um, I think it's funny. Like I'm, I'm just immediately thinking of this piece that the New York Times wrote a few years ago after we had this festival um, that the magazine, The Believer, used to be housed here. And we had this festival, The Believer Fest, and the New York Times did this piece about it. And every time some legacy publication does like a piece about our writing scene or our art scene, it's always like it's this unlikely literary city. Yeah. It's always kind <laughs> of like a, wow, I can't believe these people can read. Um, <laughs> so it ha- I feel like we have a we have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about it. Um, but we also are, are we're scrappy and we're underdogs. Um and I love that about it. Uh, and it's a, it's a small community. You know, we have an amazing independent bookstore here called the Writer's Block that, in addition to being a wonderful bookstore, does literary events and has done that for a really long time. Um, so that's a really great. And they do workshops and, and book clubs and all sorts of things there. So that's a really great literary space for the community. Um, there are some writers groups in different parts of the city and Black Mountain Institute, their programming is for the public. It is typically free. So that's something that's available to the community as well. Um, I'm probably forgetting a few things, but but I will say it is, it is a small community. Um, it's one of those things where once you start to know people from within like that literary community, you kind of end up knowing everybody. Um, and I think it makes like Vegas feel like a, a warmer more community based place because we are a really, really transient city. Um, and the literary community here is, is small and everybody is really supportive of each other. I, I don't think there's like this sense of competition. Everybody is really like trying to uplift each other and support each other. So I think that's, that's what's really special about that. Um, even though it's, you know, this is a large U S city, the literary community feels feels small and supportive and really special. Do you think that sense of community also shows up in the MFA program? Like, is there uh, pretty close relationships within the cohorts and between students and faculty? We are a small, a small, not like the smallest, but so UNLV takes fifteen people each year, five for each of the three genres. And so it's, and it, but it's three years. So you end up with like, you know, the entire group being like at capacity, that would be 45 people. Um, so it's, it's small, but not as like tiny as the MFAs where there's like one or two people, but we support, we support each other a lot. Um, my year was, I think unique because we were one of the first years, if not the first year that was really going back, like after COVID, I don't mean to say after COVID, like as in COVID is over because it's not, but, uh, you know, we were back on campus and I know the years before us were really like remote. Um, and we support each other a lot. You know, we've got like a WhatsApp group where people are constantly just kind of texting, you know, sharing opportunities, sharing like their experiences with, with teaching, you know, which is something you go through when you're a grad student um, people have movie nights, they have parties. I'm organizing some kind of like write-in spaces where we all hang out together. 
and write and then kind of socialize. So people definitely, there's definitely an effort among the cohort to, to support each other, both in like social ways and in, you know, making sure people who don't have cars have rides places and, and things like that. Um, I think that there, there really is like that sense of community, which is, which is so important. And sometimes you hear about MFAs where people are really, really competitive and you're really on your own. And that definitely isn't the environment at UNLV. People are supportive of each other and will, you know, if somebody publishes something, everybody will share that link on social media and and read Mm -hmm. it and support them. You mentioned teaching. Best I can tell from the UNLV website, it seems that everyone is funded through a teaching assistantship, um, if not everyone, most people. So what's teaching like in the MFA program? How many classes are you teaching? What types of classes? Yeah, so everyone is funded. Um, and our we actually did just, I want to mention, we, we did just get a raise this year. Um, I'm not sure what the website says, but um, when I started, it was a $15,000 stipend and we're closer to, we're, we're, we're at like 20,000. Uh, that's probably not the exact number, but we got a, a pretty significant raise this year, which uh, is great. Um, so the teaching works and they've kind of tweaked it a little bit, but when I started, you were teaching one section of English 101, so comp, and you were also working in our university writing center just people come in, you help them with their papers. And that was our first semester. And while you're doing that, you would have a class, a pedagogy class, which is kind of, you know, training for the job of teaching while you're teaching. And then after that semester, you had the opportunity to apply for non-teaching graduate assistantships. So these would include things like working for one of our literary magazines, um, Witness and Interim working as a research assistant for a professor, working for Black Mountain Institute, which is what I do, which is probably why I've mentioned it so many times I've been <laughs> doing. I've been working in events for them for, uh, this is my third year doing that now. So you do have those opportunities, but basically you will always be doing two things. Um, so for some people that might be teaching two sections of a class. For other people like me, Right now I'm teaching one section of English 101 and I'm also working uh, developing virtual events for Black Mountain Institute. So it's always it's always two things. They they changed it last year so that our first years start with just working in the writing center. I don't know if they're going to stick with that, um, but that's kind of a new thing that they've been trying. Um, So if anyone who's listening to this is interested in the program, and is nervous about like teaching right away. Um, that that's something to know that depending on how they're going to do it, I think that's a good question to ask if you if you apply and you get in, um, and that is important to you, whether you really really want to teach or you are really excited about working in a writing center. Um, that's a good question to ask them because I right now the first years start with just working in the writing center and then they can transition into other things, but. But either way, um, it's it's they say it's 20 hours of work a week, whether that's teaching two sections or teaching one section and doing something else. And some people end up with two non-teaching graduate assistantships, um, but that's quite rare. 
Well, I definitely want to talk about the international focus of this program, because I think that's one of the things that makes UNLV's MFA program really unique. As part of the program, students are required to live and study abroad for one semester. I don't think I've seen that in any other MFA program. And actually, when I was applying to MFA programs, I think UNLV was the first program I found when I started searching. So I was like, oh, they have this international component. That's what I'm doing right now. This sounds awesome. So what can you tell us about this requirement and your experience with it? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is the most special thing about our MFA. And I was at AWP last year and I told so many people about that and um, so many people were unfamiliar with it. And uh, it, it seems like it's very, it's very exciting to people and it's something that people want. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the MFA has an international focus, which means, as you said, you're required to live in another country. Um, and I know that it, it might say semester on the website. It's, it's, it could be like a to- an entire semester. Um, it could be a summer. I think um, it's supposed to be like a minimum of six weeks. But regardless of the period of time, it's kind of up to you how long you want to go um, is basically the way that it works. And they offer you funding for that. Um, so you put together a proposal of where you want to go and why, um, and you will have a faculty member that is advising you on that proposal. And then you'll be awarded money from the university and then you go. And unlike an undergraduate study abroad experience where you're typically attached to a university, you might be taking some classes, it's really up to you. Um, You know, some people might choose to be attached to like a residency or um, I suppose you could be attached to a university in another country if you wanted to be. But most people, you're kind of just on your own. You're, you're living in another country. You're writing, you're researching, you're, you're developing your language profici- proficiency there. If that's what you want to do, it's, it's really about what you want to do. So for me, um, I spent this past summer in Northern Norway. I really wanted to live in the Arctic and write about the midnight sun and... That's what I did. And UNLV paid for it, which is just so wild. Um, you know, I, I don't come from like a ton of money. Uh, Norway is a ridiculously expensive country. So I would have never had the opportunity to to spend that time in the Arctic if it hadn't been for getting that funding. So it's it's a super cool thing about the MFA. All right, I have to ask you about the midnight sun because I spent a couple of weeks in Iceland in July a few years back and it was just amazing that the sun like never sets. But I imagine in in the Arctic of Norway, it's even more impressive. So what was that like? It was really, really hard to sleep. It was really beautiful. <laughs> but um, yeah, I got like an average of three hours of sleep a night, which I feel like at a certain point, shouldn't be physically possible. (laughs) So I kind of felt like I was just hallucinating for the whole summer, but it was really amazing. And I was pursuing some, some kind of nonfiction ideas that I had. And I went to this really cool Island where they tried to abolish time. And I was just like completely sleep deprived, hiking around thinking about time. And, and again, (laughs) I was like, wow, I can't believe that uh, a university is like, (laughs) giving me money to do this. And yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, It was great. 
I can't wait to read whatever it is that you write about that experience. And I want to ask about the funding. I assume when you say that they fund that travel, it's in addition to whatever your normal funding is through the program. Yeah. So that would depend on when you go. So if you were to go for a semester, they would give you, they would give you a remote teaching. If you're teaching, um, you would, you would still have your graduate assistantship duties. They would just be remote. And so you would still get, you're correct. You would still get um, that stipend if you are there in the summer. um, So we are funded 10 months out of the year. So if you're there in the summer, uh, portion of the summer is is not funded. Um, so you would have the the money that you had gotten for that travel, which was my experience. But but yeah, if you if you go during a semester, you should still be able to to teach. Some people teach like web live, some people teach asynchronous, and they're still getting that funding. Um, you might even still be able to take classes in some capacity or at least like thesis hours. Um, we also have to do a translation. Um, so some people will do that uh, in conjunction with the international experience. Well, tell us about that translation that you have to do. I guess that's one other way in which this program is really internationally focused. It is really unique. And um, so much of that comes from um, the founder of our program, Doug Unger, who still teaches in the program and who I'm doing my translation with this semester, because um, you, you'll do that translation under the guidance of a faculty member. And they definitely don't expect you to be like an expert translator or to come into the MFA speaking another language. That was a huge concern of mine when I got into UNLV is um, I didn't speak any other language besides English. And I talked to um, somebody who was in a cohort at the time. And I was like, do I need to be fluent in some other language? And that's definitely, that's definitely not the expectation. Um, you know, translation is such an art and is very, very new to me. Um, some people might have experience with it, but uh, you will do, it, it kind of depends. I, I think like poets will usually do a few poems. Um, I'm translating this woman who was a polar bear trapper in the Arctic, um, translating a portion of her memoir um, and we'll do like 20 or 30 pages and you'll be paired with a faculty member. Um, and we also talk a lot about like translation as a creative practice um, and thinking about how that benefits you and your writing, which is really, really cool um, to think about it that way. So if you don't speak the language that the piece is in, how do you translate it? Are you using like like online resources to try to translate it as best you can? Yeah. So I, I speak a little bit of Norwegian. Um, no one asked me to do this, but once I realized I wanted to go to Norway, um, I've realized that pretty early on in the program, I started learning Norwegian. So I speak a little bit of Norwegian. It definitely helps to speak a little bit of it. Um, but if you don't, and I mean, my Norwegian is pretty bad. So, uh, I don't <laughs> even, yeah, most people when I was in Norway would just speak to me in English because my Norwegian is, is not very good, but um, <laughs> literally, you know, you'll have whatever you're translating. And I have like a, a physical, like Norwegian to English dictionary. And a lot of what we're doing is kind of looking at the possibility of each word. Um, it's really, really painstaking and tedious work of kind of looking at 
looking at the possibilities of the meaning of each word and then kind of putting them together. But we definitely have a lot of a lot of guidance from faculty on that um, because yeah, translation is 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 such an art. Um, it seems like it's a, it's an art that is increasingly being recognized, fortunately, um, and so much of what we're doing is kind of thinking about like the sort of the theories of it and the practices of it. Um, but yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, in what ways do you see it influencing your own work or the way you think about your own writing? Thinking about the possibility of each word and kind of the context of the way that each word is perceived in a culture is really interesting. Um, for example, uh, in Norwegian, they don't have separate words for boyfriend and girlfriend. There's just one gender neutral word for romantic partner, um, which is Shariston. And that's a really different way of thinking about relationships. So yeah, thinking about thinking about words and, and how they come together is pretty cool. Yeah, it does. It sounds really cool. Um, and another way in which the UNLV program is pretty unique, I think. So are there other ways that you see this international focus showing up in the program? Like, is there a focus on world literature over North American literature? The other way that I would say that it shows up is in in our cohort um, and in the people that they accept. Um, and I obviously I can't speak to other MFAs, but we we have a fair amount of international students that are brought into the program. And um, I think that's also outside of like the MFA itself, University of Nevada, Las Vegas is the most diverse college campus in America. Las Vegas is an incredibly diverse city. So that kind of diversity of people being from other countries, people speaking other languages is a big part of living in Las Vegas, going to UNLV and being in the MFA. Well, it sounds really cool. The program sounds great. And uh, it's been really fun talking to you about some of your experiences and how those have you know, made you the writer you are today. So before we go, I want to give you the last word. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? You know, I mean, I, I found that I really like teaching and I think it's important to talk about teaching because most people at most MFAs are going to have to do it. And a lot of people are really excited about it. A lot of people are really nervous about it. Um, I was definitely in that that ladder camp um, where I felt really nervous to do that. And uh, I think it's been a really, really great challenge. Um, and I think it's really like, it, it is challenging at times, like I'll be honest, but uh, it's, it is like a gift to be able to be a writer and to be talking to undergraduates and looking for the people that, that might actually love writing and being able to be a part of that journey for them. Um, you know, as I said, like when I was an undergrad, I, I knew that I wanted to write, but I, I didn't really necessarily have like a strong sense of direction. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk to like my, when I have students who I can tell really love writing, um, it's such a great opportunity to talk to them about what they might do with their writing. And going back to that, like sense of trial and error that we talked about earlier, like I'm in a position of privilege where I can really like give back to people and can, can help people who want to pursue writing, but don't really know what that means or don't have the answers to the questions they're asking. And uh, on that note, I, through Black Mountain Institute, I, I've been organizing a free virtual event series on professionalization that's open to the public. Um, just a pl plug for it. Um, but that's like another 
another thing that I didn't expect to ever be doing. And also that's like another opportunity that I've had to, to give back and to offer people tools that I feel like we all really, really deserve as writers, regardless of where we're from or what our history is or what we want to do. Well, Krista, again, it's been really great talking to you about all this stuff. Really appreciate you stopping by. Good luck as you finish the program and finish up that novel. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.